I mean, if you quit going to the gym, you didn't just stay the same, did you? It's called atrophy. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Fitness is such a fickle thing. I mean, you stop and it just goes away. Maturity is a lot like that. If you're not increasing in maturity, you are decreasing. You're not the same that you were a year or two ago. You are either more mature or you are less mature. That's how it works. Now, last year, we ended, well, I'll just say 53 sermons ago, right? 53 sermons ago, we took a hard look at setting goals and resolutions. So I'm not going to do that today. In fact, the link for that sermon is on the weekly. So you can go online, pull it down in resources. There's a page called the weekly, which is where we discuss this. There's questions on this that you can discuss in your DNA groups. There's actually a set of questions that you can talk with your family about around the dinner table. And that's where we have resources and links. One of them is to that sermon. Where, where I provided what I believe to be a, a gospel-centered understanding of setting strategies for a new year, which I think is a very biblical thing to do. And then the very first two sermons of the year of 2015, we talked about how to steward rest, how to be better resters. And all of that is there for you to find if you wanted to look at it. But this year, I wanted to start off by how we grow better. How we grow better. And I believe, and this is my opinion, I believe that stewardship, managing, is a lot like suffering. I think it's one of the fastest ways to grow, the deepest ways to grow. You bump into someone who has suffered a lot, a lot of times that person has matured and grown deeply in that suffering. It just does it to us. It just kind of pulls it and stretches it and, and needs it all out. But stewardship does as well because it's the process of us going like this with white knuckles and then opening, and that is hard, isn't it? It's hard for me to let anyone have their fingerprints on my stuff, even God himself. If you become a good manager, you will grow. You will grow. If you grow in your stewardship, you will grow as a Christian. So we're going to jump into a very short passage today, but I'm going to transport you there first because it's a pretty unique time. Jesus is actually talking to his disciples, not really the whole crowd, not the throng, but just his disciples. And this is at a time where their disciples had already given up all of their chief sources of income. The, the things that they did to make money, they pushed them aside to follow Jesus. And now they're actually getting a little bit of attack and they're catching some flack from the community because they're associated with Jesus. Right? It's an interesting time. Many people around them probably thought they were throwing their life away. I'll bet you some of these disciples thought that they were throwing their life away, right? Did that happen to you when you became a Christian? If you're a Christian in here, did you ever bump into that a little bit? Because I did. I did. I remember pushing my source of income aside, not to say that everybody needs to do that. I just knew that I needed to do that. I felt like the Lord called me to do that. And I wasn't even being persecuted for being around Jesus. All I did was just give up a source of income, and everyone thought I lost my mind. I'd gone crazy. Jesus was thoughtful in this moment, very considerate and thoughtful. And he takes a short moment to remind and encourage his disciples that they're not throwing their life away. You guys are not throwing your life away. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe what everybody's telling you. You're actually increasing as you lay things down. It's reverse physics. His, his economy is different from ours. So let's look at 834 in Mark. Mark 834. And that's going to be where you're going to want to stay today. We're going to travel through that passage. It's just a short one. And it'll be up on the screen if you don't have a device or a Bible. And we do have Bibles in the foyer if you want to grab one on the way home. It's free. Mark 8, 34. 
And it says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now pause just for a moment. Because is that not just the quintessential verse on discipleship? I mean, two out of ten sermons are going to be on that or have that in there. Out of the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I mean, it's in all of them, almost word for word, right? It gets a lot of airtime, this one little passage we just read. But I've heard a lot of dorky teaching on it. It's been dropped and fumbled and kicked around a lot. How many times have you heard someone use the phrase, that is my cross to bear, right? Well, I wanted to eat bacon this year, but the doc said no, so that's my cross to bear, I guess, you know. Or I'm married to a loser, that's my cross to bear. Not quite what Jesus was talking about right here, right? It's a misappropriation. We do have a couple key words here. We have deny, it's a key word, cross, very key word. There's a juxtaposition. Jesus taught this way a lot. Laying something down and then picking something up. Very simple for even kids to understand. I'm laying something down, denying, picking something up in the cross. But denying does not mean what culture might have you think it means, denying yourself. What it does not mean, denying yourself does not mean denying the unique makeup in which God has handcrafted you. Because God made you a certain way, did he not? You're not like the person next to you. And it's by design. It's part of his brilliance and his architecture and how he puts each and every one of us together. I think one thing I was scared of whenever I became a Christian, which I've heard from other people that have become Christians, I, I was afraid that I was going to get thrown in a blender, blended to look like everybody else and poured out so that we're all consistent. And I have to just deny the, the way God had made me. But that's not true. That's not true. God wants you to stay and honor and even see the way he made you to be beautified and glorified. So that's not what denying yourself means. And denying yourself doesn't even mean denying things. Deny the jet ski. Deny my TV. Deny my car. Deny my lust problem. Deny my addiction. It doesn't even mean denying sins, believe it or not. It's not what it means. To deny yourself means to deny the authority you have over your own life. The authority. It's an authority. That's a key word. The authority you have over your own life. It means forsaking your personal ambitions and your personal and private desires, your human life direction whenever it collides with that of God's. Whenever your ambition slams into God's ambition for all of creation, laying yours down and saying, I'm not an authority even over my very own aspirations in life. That's what it means. It's a matter of authority. And not only is denying oneself a matter of authority, so is transporting a cross, right? This is very easy to lose the meaning of right here. Carrying a cross, picking it up and carrying it, is not about relocating it. <laughs> it's not about relocating it. In Rome, to carry a cross was not just pragmatic. It wasn't just a moment where they said, hey, this guy's about to get crucified Got this big stupid piece of wood. We didn't even think it through, you know. We don't have wheelbarrows because we're just not that smart, I guess. So there's a big giant thing out there that we have to nail this thing to. So how are we going to get it from A to B? Well, let's just use this guy to do it. That's pragmatic thinking. That's not how they did that. It was actually symbolic. 
In fact, they didn't carry the whole cross. Criminals will carry what's called the patibulum, which is just the cross beam. The vertical beam was most likely already outside the city limits, right? But the patibulum and carrying that cross was a sign and a symbol of, I am under submission. That thing that I used to kick back on and rebel against, now it's on my shoulders. The weight of the government under which I was a rebel, now I carry. Right? So triumph over rebellion. That was the sign and signature of carrying a cross. Kind of like, if you, have you ever driven down the road, maybe a highway or an interstate, and you see people picking up the trash, and they were criminals at one time? Maybe they even have a shirt that says, I drove drunk, or I am a drunk driver. It's a little bit of the same thing, because there's shame involved, but there's also a nuance of submission to authority. If you miss that, you will miss the beautiful irony of the cross over you and me. Because when Jesus carried a cross, it wasn't Rome winning, it was you winning. It wasn't Rome triumphing, it was you triumphing. It's a beautiful part of the gospel that when Jesus died as a rebel, he died as a rebel in your stead for a nation of rebels. He did it to remove a shame from you. We don't wear this shamefully. We wear it boldly, this patibulum. It's an adornment to us. It's a beautiful thing that we wear. We don't carry it because a government bested us and a government submitted us. We wear it because a Jesus rescued us, enticed us, loved us, gracefully embraced us. Because at one time we fought against this king in rebellion. We fought against a different government. And so us carrying a cross shows that as we ran away from God and rebelled against God and his kingdom and his government, now we are submitted to it. Not at our loss, though, but at our gain. At our gain. Bearing a cross doesn't mean doing without. It means getting more. That's where our culture misses it, I think, a lot of times. Bearing a cross doesn't mean, well, I guess I'm just going to suffer now. It could mean that, but it's for your gain and profit if you do, which is what we're going to read here in just a moment. So what we are saying in a life lived under the weight of a cross is that we are not the authority. We have an authority. We have an authority. We are under one, and this is for our gain. It is not for our loss. But that is the human problem, isn't it? Therein lies the problem because as humans, as you and I, we don't like authority. We don't want an authority in our life. We want to be the authority. Give me an opportunity. Just tempt me. Give me an opportunity to throw off authority, and I'll take it. I'll take it. If I think that the authority is oppressive, maybe obsessive a little bit, maybe inappropriate, I'll throw it off just like that. I will. And you're the same way, because we loathe it. Have you ever said the statement, where is a police officer when you need him? Where is a police officer when you need him? What are you saying when you say that? I really need an authority figure right now because it benefits me. Because that jack wagon just cut me off, and I had to slam on my brakes. Where's a police officer when you... I need to be benefited in seeing that person have justice meted out to them, right? But what happens when you get pulled over instead of that guy? There he is. There's a police officer. Obviously not there when you need him, but there when it doesn't even make sense. We don't mind authority when it benefits us. We hate and loathe authority when it costs us, Right? I've already said publicly how much I hate um, my vehicle and probably all of your vehicles for dinging until you put the seatbelt in. 
I can't stand it. I've looked for ways to hack that in my pickup. It's just not going to happen for me. Every time, I just get reminded that my truck is telling me what to do. My truck is telling me what to do. You better buckle up. The buckle up. I read the other day that, that not just Knoxville, but the state of Tennessee has doubled its fine for driving without a seatbelt, right? Driving without a seatbelt. The whole state of Tennessee that started just a couple days ago, by the way. And at first when I read it, I thought, that's obscene, obscene, and very inappropriate. And then I read what the, what the fine was. It actually doubled from $20 or $25 up to $40 or $50. And you know what the first thing that hit my mind is? I think I can afford that. That's not that bad of a fine. Because I don't want anyone telling me what to do. And you don't either. I was running down a greenway the other day, or not the other day, but probably a couple months ago, I think before they took it off, there was some graffiti at a very key place on the trail. And it said, now it's, I'm just going to say blank, fill in the blank. It was a, just a cuss word, right? It said, blank the system. So predictable. <laughs> blank the system. Probably by a 15-year-old with a can of old spray paint, doesn't even know what the system is. It's just in us from a young age to stick it to the man. Get your hands off my life. I am the authority. I am. We can actually trace where this came from because did you know that's genetically in you? Spiritually, genetically in you to do this. You could trace it all the way back to your very, very first father, Adam, in the garden with a not-so-watchful eye as his bride was taking something God said no to and she said yes to it. And therein he said yes to it as well. And there's a dragon in the garden, a snake, the serpent. And you know what he is saying to them? God's not honest with you. Yeah, he's got imperatives and dictates, but they're oppressive, aren't they? And they're a little bit inappropriate because he's assuming you don't know how to lead your own life, but you know how to lead your own life. In fact, you would do a better job with your life than he would. You should be in the driver's seat. It's just kind of dumb that he's the authority when you could easily be the authority. That serpent still talks today, doesn't he? Is that not the lie you hear in your life? Because that's the lie I'm hearing in my life. The ultimate lie is God is oppressive. He's asking way too much from you. But we have a good hero. That even though his heel was bruised, his heel crushed the head of a serpent, and we can trust him. We can trust our hero because when our first Adam failed his family in the garden, our second Adam, Jesus, succeeded and saved his family, not in a garden, but on a cross and out of an empty tomb. And because of this, we're all thankful. And because of this, we can trust our life to him. And because discipleship means and growing in Jesus means living under the authority of another, that means that when you're not growing, friend, most likely that's an authority issue. Find an area of your life where you just are stuck, not growing, wheel spinning. Who's really owning and who's, who's stewarding? Are you owning that part of your life? Or are you managing that part of your life? It's an authority issue. It's falling for the same tired, old, predictable line from that dragon in the garden. Live a life, friends, where you will spurn authority in your life. Live that and you won't grow. Live a life where you own instead of managing, you just won't grow. That's how it works. And I think what we've read so far and just, just so far 
in Mark, and what we're about to get into, is that the key area that today's passage is requiring us to lay down is our individuality. Our desire and hunger for our own secret ambitions and aspirations, our life's goal. Because our heart responds and it says, what about me? What about me, Luke? I've got aspirations and ambitions, so what do I do with them? I mean, not all of them are bad, Luke. It's not like I'm, I want to set up a human trafficking ring or rob a bunch of banks. I have some pretty, what I think are noble things I would like to do, so what do I do with those? He tells us in Mark 8. This is very helpful for me. Mark 8, 35, continue on in that same passage if you're still there. For whoever would save his life, keyword, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That word life right there, the Greek word is not bios. It does not mean your physical existence, the calcium and the carbon and what makes you up. It's actually the word suke, which is where we get the word psyche, which is driven to a better word that we use, which is soul. That part of you that thinks. That part of you that wills. That part of you that aspires. Part of you that has ambitions. It is very simply your individuality. Losing life. Here, it's not talking about losing your salvation. Whenever it says... For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my... What what they're not saying, what Jesus is not saying right here is that you will lose your salvation if you live the way you want to. Remember, he's talking to his disciples. It's very important that you remember the context. He's talking to people that love and believe in him, right? He's telling them, you're not throwing your life away. You're gaining. You're not wasting. You're gaining. Keep things in perspective, Because I've heard some bad teaching on this, which is if you do what you want today, disciples, if you do what you want today, you'll lose heaven. You'll lose heaven. But if you want to gain heaven, then you got to eat all your vegetables. You got to perform well, perfectly today. And that's the only way you're going to see heaven. It's a weird teaching because it makes heaven the prize instead of Jesus. Since when is heaven the prize? Jesus is our prize. And we're not damned to hell when we misperform, because his performance trumps and overlays on top of our bad performance. It's a goofy teaching sometimes we hear about this. Eternity with our loving hero does not come by how many vegetables we eat. It doesn't come by your level of performance. One performed brilliantly, passionately, because we could not. This is what Jesus' point is in this. If a person wants to retain control of his or her life now, They will suffer the loss of a reward that is much more valuable in the future. Think of rewards. If a person will relinquish control of his or her life to follow God's will faithfully, then he will show and gain something of greater ultimate worth at a different time. It's a value comparison. It's a value comparison. Uh, uh, Within this last week, me and, and Paula, we sat down and we spoke with Jordan about investing. He's a brilliant kid. He already knows about investing. Right? He knows what it means to invest. But we were talking to him about investing at the age of 14. Right? Put money in now, and then when you are 35, you could buy a Jeep. Eh? That's how you talk to 14-year-olds. You could buy a Jeep. And if you just leave it in there and you invest wisely, you could buy a jetliner in 50 years. Who doesn't want a jetliner, right? If you're so inclined to have one. Invest. But 
the look on his face is, was a little bit disappointed, right? It was more like, like this. Because it feels intrusive. No one really enjoys investing. And if you do enjoy investing, it's because you're already thinking about the return down the line. But no one wants to lay anything down today. It feels oppressive. Investing feels oppressive. So the big idea in this passage and what I'm trying to convince you of today is that every day you're living under an authority. It's either yours or it's another's authority. Every day you make that choice. And if you live under an authority, under God's authority, it means denying your own suke, your own soul, your own individuality and aspirations and ambitions. And this will be a gain to you. This will be a gain to you. If your ambitions slam into God's and God's looks different, you lay yours down, you gain. That's what he's saying. We don't even own our own ambition. Is that not nuts? Think about it. You don't even own that. Those hungers and those desires, you don't own them. That compass heading, you've worked so hard going this way with your life, you don't own it. It's a gift to you. It's a gift. That means you're a steward of these things a manager of these things. Look at your New Year's resolutions this year. I know we always have the obligatory, I'm going to do something with my weight, gain weight, lose weight, whatever. I know we always have that, right? I want to read this many books. I want to read the Bible in a year. I want to, we always have. How many resolutions do you currently have and how many can you work on that deal with nothing but stewardship? I want to manage my fill-in-the-blank differently for God's glory. Think about it. It's hard for us to think about this because denying individuality is a big, fat, sore wound in our culture. You were grown up to believe, and so was I, that no one can touch your individuality. That belongs to you and you alone. No one's allowed to touch it. Can't tell you anything. No, you can't tell me anything. You can't tell me even if I'm a boy or a girl. That's up for me to decide. That's my individuality. Can't tell me anything. So what I'm suggesting to you, I understand, is shaving against the grain. I do know that. I didn't go to seminary for very long, but when I did, it was to pursue a master's in anthropology and in a school of missions. And one of the things I learned, probably something all of you already know, and that's that in the East, Eastern cultures, they think group, group value. Whatever accelerates and elevates the group is a win but they don't think about the individual. It's actually different in the West. You get to Europe and you get to America, and groupthink is not as important as individual think. What benefits the individual? What prospers the individual? Personally, I believe that's one of the reasons, just one, that the gospel is exploding in the East, and it's stagnant, if not in decline, here in the West, because we have an individually-oriented mindset. I will go to church, but I will not be the church because I'm an individual. I will attend, but I will not assimilate because I'm my own person and you can't tell me what to do and I've got my own direction and get your hands off of it. That's what we've grown up in. That's what we've become. And that's why we struggle with teachings like this. We have ambition issues. Some of us have ambition issues because we don't have any ambition. <laughs> We're fine just living in a van somewhere, right? Just going along with the flow. But that's not most of us. And that's not what this text is necessarily talking about. It's talking about those of us who have great ambitions, even for noble things, but they're twisted under the sin of being under our own watchful eye, our own authority, and no one else's. That's the problem we bump into. Let me give you a caution in this, 
just a quick one before we jump into some applications here in a moment. Be, be careful of trying to get God to sign off on your pet project because you think he might be okay with it too. That's like giving your spouse a gift that's really a gift for yourself, right? Not that any of you have ever done that, right? Hey, Paula, Merry Christmas, you know. Here's a big box of pans and pots, and here's some private lessons from a, a, a local chef. Not that your cooking's bad or anything, you know, <laughs> but Merry Christmas. That looks a bit selfish, doesn't it? God, I really want to do this. This is what I want to do with my life. Of course, I could preach the gospel along the way if it's okay with you. I mean, certainly you're not upset with this, right? I mean, it's okay with both of us, right? Be careful. Be very careful. Because if you're the authority, you're not the disciple. Can't be both. If you're the owner, you're not the manager. You can't be both. That's how this, that's how this rocks. What is your life aimed at? that you have not truly submitted to God. Consider it, even if it's noble, even if it feels good, are you scared to ask God? Are you scared to ask God if it's something he's excited about because you fear there's a 1% chance he might say no? A thing you hide and tuck away in the dark corner of your heart, lying to yourself, that certainly he's okay with it, so I won't submit it to him. Listen, when I became a Christian, I did 95% of my things wrong. I didn't do, it's a totally different sermon, but I didn't do a great job of just being a Christian is a new Christian. I just didn't know what I was doing. I was two left feet for like the first year it felt like. But one thing that the people around me taught me to do very well and very quickly, like day one, and I believe this is how I became a Christian, I put everything I owned on a table, everything my girlfriend, my career, my college direction, everything, my car, my money, my time, my thought life, everything. I put it on a table. I say, here it is, God. It's yours. You own it. What you want to give back to me, I will take for your glory. And what you want to take, I'm not going to be a big baby about it. It's yours. And what was going on in my mind is the story of Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain. We've all heard it growing up in Sunday school. Abraham goes up the mountain with Isaac to sacrifice him because he doesn't even own his own son. He's managing God's gift to him, his own son. He's going to sacrifice this kid. He doesn't know he's going to come back down with his kid. He doesn't come down alone. He thought he was going to, but he came down with his son. The whole time I'm putting things on the table, I know I'm going to come down the mountain without some things. I know I'm going to do it. Some things God allowed me to keep for his glory in many things I never saw again. I was being taught. I was being taught a very difficult lesson in denying my ownership and picking up a cross and disagreeing with a snake. So right now, if you're hesitant to take your individuality and submit it on that table and place it before Jesus because you're fearful, even a little bit fearful, that he won't give it back, then you've not denied yourself. You've kept it. You've not denied yourself. You still own it. You've joined Adam as you listen to the snake tell you how oppressive and obsessive God is and how he's just getting in the way and he doesn't know what to do as well as you know what to do. Come on. Your boot's on the ground. You know the situation better than anybody, right? 
Who better to own that thing than you? That's a lie. You see, stewardship sounds so oppressive if we don't see the beauty of God at the same time. It does, doesn't it? It just feels like a bunch of loss. <laughs> it feels like just a bunch of horrible, gruesome, disappointing loss. It would be easy for you to sit there and go, golly, well, I guess I'll join a convent then, you know? I guess I'll just give up my life. I'll just give all my stuff away. I'll drop out of whatever I'm in. I'll just be a nun, whatever. Boo, loss, loss, loss. It's just horrible. But hear Jesus' assurance in this. That's what he's doing. He's assuring his disciples. Any loss you feel, any suffering that comes in the loss of denying yourself is a down payment for massive profit. A down payment for massive profits. He's leading us to see that he's not oppressive. He's not inappropriate with his requests. He's not harmful to us, but he's loving towards us. He's considerate. He's gentle for us. Here's some application for a new year. As I'm ending this here pretty quick. Application for a new year, for 2016. Here's the question I'm asking myself. How can I become, or how can I grow to be a cross carrier who honors the authority of God over even my own ambition, aspiration, and individuality? How can I be a good cross carrier? I only have two steps, super fast today. Step one is locate where you don't deny self and where you don't pick up a cross. Asking yourself the question, who's in charge? Who's in charge right now, right? Where, and the way you locate it is, where are you scared to let God get his hands on something? Where is that at? What will you not let him touch? Is it your job? Is it your relationships? Is it your time, your treasures? What is it? Where are your knuckles white in your life? A phrase you've used in your life, a phrase all of us have used in our life, is one that you still hear around kids. It's usually occurring in a place where there's a bunch of kids with one toy. Hey, it sounds like this. Hey, let me see that for a minute. Hey, let me see that for a minute, right? You know it ain't going to be a minute. That's why you're not giving it to them. You know as soon as you let them see that toy, they're gone. That minute just turned into an hour. You may never see it again. If you get it back, it might be broken, and you're so fascinated with it, you just can't part with it for one minute. And you know it's not one minute. Let me see it for a minute. If I'm being honest, that's the way it feels like for me sometimes. I'll bump into something where I fear just for a moment that God is saying, let me see that for a minute. Let me see that for a minute. Oh, no, Jesus, you're going to take it and run off. I know what that means. I don't want to do it. Where is that for you? One quick way to tell is just to see where your knuckles are white. You've probably already thought about it just in the space of a quick 30 minutes that we've all sat here so far. Another is just to ask the people that are close to you. Stop pretending that you do a good job of seeing yourself clearly. Because we don't. We're bad self-appraisers. But the people around you can see where your knuckles are white. Do you have the courage to ask the people that you love, that you're doing life on life with, where are my knuckles? Where do I refuse to give something to the Lord? I was telling my son the other day that I feel like some of the most dangerous people in the world are those who feel like they're right and cannot be convinced that they're wrong. These are the people that are above listening to anyone. They won't listen to anyone. They won't yield to anyone. And they maintain authority over their life and over the lives around them. The most dangerous people in the world. If this is you and you're struggling under this, friend, you're in danger. In danger of hurting yourself and definitely in danger of hurting those around you. 
you're not only a bad steward, but the ownership that you're doing, you're doing a bad job of that too. So you'd have to repent. That's the logical answer is to repent, to turn our back on this. Because a bad manager, that's just incompetency. But a wicked, wicked manager is one who steals and says, this is mine. That's even worse than incompetence. So that's number one. Locate where your white knuckles are at, where you don't deny self and where you don't pick up a cross. And then number two, and this is going to feel like it's out of left field. Number two is steward your ambitions by developing a clarion statement or mission, right? Now, this is very hard, hard practical. What is your life's direction? Because good managing has a plan to it. Good stewardship has a strategy behind it. You don't just become a good manager just out of the blue. You got to sit down and you got to strategize it out. Mission statements are helpful for this. I know when I say the word mission statement, you immediately think of something a church might have or a ministry or even a business would have, a, a good business would have a mission statement. We rarely think of the fact that individually we need to have mission statements. An exercise that we went through um, the last couple months of 2015 is our entire staff developed personal mission statements. If you want to learn how to do that, there's a blog on the front page of our website. Uh, it basically describes maybe a couple easy, easy steps to get going in the direction of developing a mission statement for your life. It's important. It's important to let it define your major decisions, revisiting it over and over again. You know, I'm not a scuba diver because it's underwater <laughs> and there's fish down there and you're breathing through a pipe and it's just, and I'm not doing it. But I've, I've had conversations with scuba divers and they will tell you, and some of you might be, that when you get in murky water, like really bad lake water and why you'd be scuba diving in a lake, I don't even know. But if it's murky, it's very difficult to tell what is up and what is down. You get disoriented really fast. So all you have to educate you on where you're at are your gauges. You look at your gauges. That's what a mission statement is supposed to be. It's not for the easy, easy days where all your decisions pretty much make themselves, but when you bump into stormy waters, it helps you see what north is. This is what my life is about. Man, that almost pulled me off track. That almost got me off track, but this is my direction. This is what I'm supposed to do. You should be doing that before you do your New Year's resolutions, right? And you could read on the blog more about that. But if you become efficient in the wrong direction, it's not very efficient anymore, is it? You can be very, very productive. And you're, you're productively running the wrong way. What's the right way? A mission statement helps with that. If you look at the lives of Paul and Jesus, they were ruined for anything other than that direction, weren't they? I mean, they don't just come out and say, hey, this is my mission statement, in case anyone was wondering. But... Is it not clear that they had one? They had an overriding mission that was just pulling them, almost like on a rope. <laughs> and with all that Paul went through, we just spent 33 weeks looking at the book of Acts. Some of these guys, with what was hitting them from the left and hitting them from the right, they just kept going in the same direction, did they not? Plant churches get the Rome. Plant churches get the Rome. Plant churches get chapter after chapter after chapter. An overriding mission. They were great stewards they were great stewards of their ambition and their life direction because first and foremost, they denied themselves and pick up the cross. But secondly, they took some time to really develop a clarion call of what defines them, specifically them, right? I'm on my second, 
I'm on my second biography of Teddy Roosevelt. He's a fascinating character for me. But he did this exercise. He, did, he was real big on exercising, wrestling and boxing and all kinds of crazy stuff. But he, one of the things he would do is he would go outside with guests, like maybe some aides or officials. And he always did this when like foreign officials would come in, like a French ambassador or something might visit. He would take the French ambassador out and he would say, you see that lighthouse way out there? We're going to go straight for it. And if there's something in the way, we're going to crawl over it or go under it or swim across it, but we won't go around it. We're going to go a straight line there and a straight line back. And history will show you that sometimes they'd come back without pieces of clothing because they'd be sopping wet, missing a shoe, torn pants, because they're, they're hucking themselves over bales of hay and, and climbing over houses and crazy stuff to get to this place. He would actually change his tactics for foreign um, diplomacy based on how that person would react. So if the French ambassador went like, this is dumb, Teddy, I'm going around the house, I'll see you on the other side. It would help him see this is how I'm supposed to work with this guy. Now, what I love about this exercise is that he was undaunted. It's going in a straight line. That's what a mission statement is. You walk out the front door, there's my lighthouse. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? Now, I would bet that nine out of ten of us don't have one of these things called a mission statement that's personal. Just the exercise of distilling one out of who you are, just the exercise of that is very informative. Taking the time to write it out. I think that will be helpful just as a hard practical application. And you can find that online. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to finish right now. The good news is, is that there is going to be a day when all suffering and laying of things down will end because we'll be face to face with a king. We'll be eclipsed with a life that we cannot lose any longer. We will gain more than we paid here on this broken planet. It's good news. The good news is that the owner, he's gentle. And he's benevolent. Because listen, we're going to fail at this. Today we'll fail at our stewardship and our managing. We're just, we're going to fail. And even when you do, he pursues you. He embraces you. He's encouraged. He has a smile on his face as he looks at you. If you're in Jesus, listen, he's super excited about you if you're in Jesus. He loves you, right? Smiling when he sees you, even when you fail. That's good news. This cross on our back as we carry it, it reminds us of how good he is. Not how much he hurts and takes from us, but how good he is. So good to us. This makes it easy for us to give him our lives. Father, we thank you for being so sweet to us that you loved us enough to adorn us with the cross that says we are submitted to your kingdom, not our own private kingdom. Lord, we're thankful that you would give a cross and, and put it on our back to say that we have a king, that we are no longer the king. This is a benefit to us. This is a profit to us. And we're thankful. Lord, it is a difficult process to lay parts of our life down, to say that I don't even own my own ambitions and hungers, but I even submit those. Father, that's so hard. And I know people in this room are struggling with that. But God, that you would show them how beautiful you are. You are better than whatever any ambition can give us. You are sweeter than what any aspiration could provide for us. Your will, your desire is so much better than all of ours. Father, show us how beautiful you are 
that we gladly let go of things. Because, Lord, I know this is a room, I'm speaking for myself, this is a room full of bad owners and bad managers. We don't do a good job of owning our lives, and we do a, an even worse job, probably, of managing them. We're not great stewards. There are things we hold back. But, Lord, not that we would drop things because we don't want to get spanked, but we drop things because of the intoxication of how gorgeous and beautiful and brilliant and intense you are. That we would quickly, easily, and joyfully drop the things that clamor around us on this place, looking forward to a better place. So, Lord, as we pray and as we sing and take communion, as we do these things as a response to you, Father, show us those dark corners of the heart that we're just scared to let